0: Did the onset of COVID-19 and a racial awakening create the perfect atmosphere for our city to face its history? This is Anatomy of a Crisis, the impact of racism on public health in America. I'm your host, Denisha Snell. Join me as we explore the history, systems, and people that have shaped where we live, work, and play. Hello, thank you for joining us again for Anatomy of a Crisis. I'm here today with Hakima Payne, who is affectionately called Mama Hakima in the community. Mama Hakima, I'm grateful to be here with you today and grateful to have this conversation. I want to start out by asking you to tell folks a bit about yourself and your organization. I'm sitting here in your building with you today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your organization, and why you're here.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your show. I am a born and bred Kansas Cityan as uh, I often say, so I have the advantage of having lived the full trajectory of my 20, I'm sorry, 59 years, I'm really pushing it, 59 years in one place. And so I've got to see the trajectory, how maternal and infant health has evolved in this place, which really mirrors what's happening nationally. I think Kansas City's a pretty fertile testing ground. We're kind of a microcosm of of what's happening everywhere else Mm -hmm. throughout the country. But I started my organization, Uzazi Village, in 2012. So we'll be celebrating our 10th anniversary next year. And I started it because of my own journey. I've had nine babies of my own, all beautiful, wonderful, healthy pregnancies and uneventful births that all went really well but that is not the typical experience of African-American women. I started my career um, in my mid to late 20s as a labor and delivery nurse and what I saw really shocked me and really radicalized me. I went to work at the local hospital that happened to be the hospital where i gave birth to my first baby at the age of 15. that was an unpleasant enough of an experience that even though i loved pregnancy and birth i did not care for the the hospital birth experience so i was really excited to go back and work in that very hospital where I had given birth. But what I saw from my insider's view as a labor and delivery nurse really shocked me. I refer to it as Mm. soul-crushing. Because I saw so much of what really goes wrong with healthcare for black women, Mm -hmm. uh, or black birthing persons, as they subject themselves to that clinical experience. So. As a new nurse, I witnessed a lot of racism that I think is really inherent in healthcare systems, as well as sexism, (laughs) there's a lot of sexism in maternity care, but definitely the racism is there. And the ways in which it expresses itself can be really subtle, but the outcomes aren't subtle at all. The outcomes really result in the health inequities or the health disparities that we see and that people are talking about all the time now. It was decades before I saw this issue really come to the forefront, the way it is now. Now everybody's talking about black maternal mortality and black infant health, but I spent most of my career saying hey wait a minute something's really wrong here mm-hmm. and everyone else kind of saying what what are you talking about so it, it feels really vindicating sometimes although it feels a little trendy sometimes mm-hmm. but there is something vindicating that now these conversations are part of the public discourse about how black women are treated in healthcare care and how it impacts their health outcomes and how it impacts the next generation, because we're talking about birth here, and, and how we systemically treat and steer birth in such a way as to have a negative impact, even on the next generation, you know, that's coming up. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that in a nutshell is why I do what I do, because I had such positive birth experiences myself, especially once I left the hospital system.
0: Okay, so we'll, <laughs> I, so there's so much that... There's a lot. I, there's a lot. Um, I want you to talk about Uzazi Village and, and what you all do here, but while you're talking, there's so much going through my head. I'm thinking about my ancestors yes. and my <laughs> grandmothers, yes. and they were not giving birth in hospitals they were giving birth with midwives and that was a comfort for them but it's something to hear you talk about the joy and enjoyment of childbirth and pregnancy which is not the case for many of us especially for black women so let's first though talk about Uzazi Village what you do here and why this is so important to the black community
1: well, I, I do have to back up just a bit because okay. my own story is informed by exactly what you said. Because my birth experiences shifted when I shifted from hospital birth to home birth. Mm-hmm. And so, from baby number four, I had my fourth baby at home with midwives, and all my babies after that were born at home. So, I had six home births with midwives, and that totally reshaped my thinking about birth it totally informed my expectations as a labor and delivery nurse Mm -hmm. because i knew what normal birth looked like i i had my own home births i had gone to other people's home births who were in my peer group i knew what normal birth looked like and i was just so puzzled As to how you take you know normal healthy childbearing persons (laughs) and put them in this environment and totally medicalize their experience Mm -hmm. when I know in another environment it would have looked it would have rolled out totally different from that so I'm really glad that I had my home birth experiences it really informed my knowledge and my expectation and my experience of birth and what I knew to be normal and how healthcare systems really medicalize that event and our bodies are pathologized in that experience. So it was really because of my home birth experiences, which I had first Mm -hmm. and then I became a nurse, that really left me scratching my head at the hospital systems thinking, why does it have to be this way? We, We are making things worse for women when we do things this way. Now back to your original Mm -hmm. question, Uzazi Village was really born out of that frustration, out of the frustration of why are we doing this to women? Why are we treating childbirth like it's a catastrophe waiting to happen? I can understand managing a catastrophe when it does happen, but Mm -hmm. why is everyone a disaster waiting to happen? And then there's this heavy-handed, technological, medicalized approach birth that really just does nothing to enhance the safety or the satisfaction of the experience. And so I really started Uzazi Village because of what I was seeing as a labor and delivery nurse. It led to severe frustration on my part, so much so that after seven years I left bedside nursing and went into academia because I thought, One, I can't take the heartache of seeing how we treat people in birth, and and two, maybe I can be part of the solution if I'm educating healthcare providers before they get to the floor. But that didn't pan out either. In fact, I saw even more racism and sexism in academia Mm. than I saw in the clinical setting, which again, really surprised me. And I thought, I will not give my life to this. I will not. Stay in academia. As much as I love to teach, this will not be an ongoing part of my professional experience either. And that's what moved me into the nonprofit realm. Interestingly enough, I've been very skittish and very hesitant about entering the nonprofit realm, mm-hmm. uh, and yet it's here that I've really affected the most change. Okay. So I started Uzazi Village in 2012, as I said, with an idea for a community-based Doula program. Uh, a doula is a professional pregnancy and labor support person. I think of them as pregnancy labor and postpartum navigators, Mm -hmm. where they hold your hand and sort of companion you through those experiences, and that's the kind of uh, program I wanted to get off the ground. The problem was a simple one. I thought doulas have been shown in the research to have a very favorable impact on birth outcomes, yet the folks who experience the worst birth outcomes have the least ability to access Access a doula. And so how do we fix that? And so that was the problem I set out to solve with my nonprofit is how do we make doulas more accessible to people who would experience the best and biggest benefit from them? And it took many years. First, (laughs) I had to create a doula. And so that meant creating a doula training. And then we chose the women from the community because I wanted a culturally congruent model. Basically, I wanted black doulas caring for black families, Mm -hmm. which in its time was very controversial. I got a lot of pushback for that, a lot of pushback. I was called racist for wanting to have that cultural congruency as a piece of my models. And so we created a training. We interviewed and got folks who wanted to become doulas. And then the biggest piece of that puzzle that I had to solve is who's gonna pay for this? (laughs) Because the women who would be receiving the doulas wouldn't necessarily have the, the finances to afford them. And so I made a list of all the stakeholders. Who benefits when Women have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy birth and give birth to a healthy baby who mm-hmm. benefits and I made a list and lots of folks benefit from that. And I thought, aha, that's who should pay someone mm-hmm. who's on this list because they're receiving the benefits of this. So it shouldn't just be on the family who are the de- direct recipients of the care to pay because everybody, so many people benefit when there's a healthy pregnancy resulting in a healthy baby. And so that's when I started recruiting insurance companies and for several years we did have insurance companies pay us I know right now a lot of states are moving toward Medicaid reimbursement, and so yeah, back then Medicaid reimbursement was not a thing. It, it still isn't a thing right. in most states, but it, lots of folks are having the conversation now. Um, and and so we got insurance companies to pay, and after a few years I I moved away from that model because insurance companies... Uh, ironically the more popular the program became Mm -hmm. the more restrictive they became about who could be in it because as it became popular they had to put out more money and remember they weren't being reimbursed Medicaid wasn't reimbursing the insurance companies they were just paying from their own coffers and so the more popular those programs became the fewer people the insurance companies wanted to put in the program. So they started making more and more restrictions, and I said, no, (laughs) this isn't going to work. And so we're currently in a place where the model we're using is that our doulas are grant funded. So we get a lot of grants, we probably spend $100,000 a year or so in grant money to pay for doula services. So the end clients still don't pay, but the doulas absolutely get paid. Because I, from the beginning, I never believed in free doula service. They're giving real care, even though it's not medical care, Mm -hmm. it's real care, it's real work, and they should be compensated for that work at uh, marketable prices. So free doula work never entered my mind. I've always been very opposed to that the doulas must get paid and someone who's benefiting should be the payer right so as it is right now we we do well funding our doulas with grant monies but i don't even want to stay on that model i want to move to a model where right now our doulas receive a stipend they get between 12 and 1500 per client but i'd really rather move to a model where our doulas you know have wages or salaries and benefits Mm -hmm. so where they aren't just independent contractors but they're full-fledged employees with all the benefits of employees and that maybe could come
0: with medicaid reimbursement if the rates are high enough so i haven't got to policy yet but let me just throw this out there for Medicaid expansion, does that have anything to do with how your program could be funded or does it matter?
1: Oh yes, it absolutely has to do with perhaps future funding, but I don't see it as a perfect solution okay. because Medicaid funding always comes with regimentation right. that we've avoided up till till now. And so the the few states there's been half a dozen or so states that have already ina- enacted new legislation, cause that's what it will take, mm-hmm. new legislation, mm-hmm. to create Medicaid reimbursement for doulas. The few states that have done it so far have done it with varying degrees of success, but they always come with tight restrictions and new definitions of who and what a doula is, who can call themselves a doula, what it takes to call yourself a doula, mm-hmm. what requirements you have to meet, And that's where things can get really sticky.
0: Okay. There's a couple things I want to ask about. I want to back up a little bit and talk about how we got here to this point where black women, regardless of their education, regardless of their income, are being most affected by the maternal mortality rates. How did we get here? Because people would say, you know, well, she's not educated. Well, that doesn't happen to be the case. Or she doesn't make enough money to do this. But you have black women who are educated and who make good money who are still suffering from what's happening right now with maternal mortality rates. Talk to us Mm -hmm. about how we got here.
1: All right. Happy to talk to you about that. You probably won't like my response because... We've never been anywhere else. Mm. We've never been anywhere else.
0: So, I understand that. I want our audience to understand (laughs) what that means. Because, again, I mentioned my ancestors earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, what they would tell you was they were not in a good space, but they were in a loving space. If that makes sense. Yes. Right? Because they were surrounded by the people, you know, they knew they couldn't go to this certain hospital. They couldn't do that because they were segregated or, but they were surrounded by Meemaws and, you know, Mama and sisters and aunties. It does make a difference, but when you consider
1: that African Americans have always been an underclass and the united states that we've always been locked out in some ways first under enslavement then under racial separatism through jim crow and black codes when you consider that we've always been separated from the possibility of what could be the best of care the best of circumstances the best of economic opportunities that has always played into black health outcomes because it isn't just maternal and infant mortality and morbidity, which is death and sickness. Mm -hmm. It isn't just in perinatal care or maternity care. It's across the board that African-Americans suffer worse health outcomes. And that's because we've always existed in a social milieu where we were locked out or left out. So it shouldn't come as, as any surprise that since the time they've maintained records that Black maternal health and Black infant health has always been below that of white maternal and infant health. Mm -hmm. So that's always been the case. So we didn't get here, we've always been here. Interestingly enough, some of those numbers are actually worse now Mm. than they were. And it's because of what you described, at least that protective factor of memaws and aunties really made a difference and now in the current healthcare industrial complex you're divorced of even that and we've Mm. seen the extreme of that in COVID where you couldn't take anybody maybe you could take one person but during the height of COVID you couldn't take anybody with you and so there was none of that protection of family or loved ones being around you to advocate on your behalf which is primarily what doulas do. They're primarily educators and advocators. Absolutely. Uh, It's very distressing to me, someone who's been in this work for decades, to actually see the numbers get worse. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see a little bit of a rebound now, but I actually watch the statistics get worse for black women and black babies. Maybe now it's on a little bit of an upward trajectory but we didn't just arrive here we've always been here we've always had worse birth outcomes and there have been factors throughout history to make that a little better or a little worse Mm. but our numbers have always been behind
0: white americas so what are the factors in history that have made the numbers a little better or a little worse let me just throw this out here when you have people who are ignoring the battle cry essentially of black women and black families saying we have an issue but you have to have somebody like a Serena Williams who comes out and says something and then people say well we don't understand she's wealthy, she has all this money and this fame and and access to the best but that doesn't even seem to matter. What have been the things historically that have made things better or worse for us?
1: Well there's a lot but I will say we've known probably since the 90s that this wasn't just socioeconomic we've known for a while now that it didn't matter how well educated you were or how much money you made it really only mattered that you are black mm-hmm. <laughs> and that if you are black that the racism that comes from the experience of living life in a black body is what puts you at risk uh, so it doesn't matter how well-educated or not that black body is. It's just the fact that you're in a black body. I think the medicalization of birth has been one of those things that makes it worse that even the way healthcare providers are taught, I think all the bias (laughs) and racism is also in education. That was certainly my observation when I entered that field. Healthcare providers are taught to have different expectations of black bodies than they do from
0: white bodies. Tell me more <laughs> I know what you mean But I want to be able to walk the audience through this I mean I'm a black woman of course And I've lived this But I want Somebody who may be You know I'm a doctor and I'm an OBGYN And I am not racist Mama Hakima oh, well, Walk me say through what you see always,
1: They always say that Absolutely so
0: let's uh, talk about that
1: And so I, I think this is part of the social sickness that is America uh, is that we just, on site, have different expectations of white bodies than we do for black bodies. Or that we have different beliefs about black bodies than we do about white bodies. And we unconsciously or subconsciously act on those beliefs, biases, and expectations whether or not we realize it. So one of the things that's subtly taught And commonly believed is that black bodies can endure more pain Mm -hmm. and that totally impacts not only how your pain is treated how your pain is perceived but it also does something to the psyche of the person treating you about their compassion toward your suffering all of this is rolled into Clinical care and how that person is treated Oh, those black women, you know They're always loud with their pain, but they really don't have it that bad and and Oh, they just make a lot of noise, but just ignore that they're okay so there's a lot of that that's mm-hmm. sort of inherent in the in the teaching and it was I saw it even in my own education that uh Black bodies are just received and perceived in a very different way. And that usually is negative, that usually uh, amounts to less compassion. There's just so many ways that it express itself. Another way is racism can even embed itself in healthcare. And so the best example I give for that is drug testing of pregnant bodies. So the ethical way to do drug testing of pregnant persons would be to either drug test everyone or drug test no one. That would be what would be most fair and would meet a high ethical standard. You treat everyone the same <laughs> and give them the same thing or just treat no one with that test. But that is not how it happens in healthcare settings. Individuals are tested according to criteria. And that criteria is incredibly subjective. Mm. And so if black bodies are seen as suspect, which they typically are, and there's any doubt, then that clinician, be it a nurse or a doctor, really anyone can order drug testing at any provocation. And the fact that you're black is going to trigger that testing just because black bodies are seen as more
0: suspect so you mean to tell me that number one there's a policy around this
1: yes absolutely
0: and number two everybody is not just automatically drug tested if you're pregnant
1: no no it's by criteria and that criteria usually is criteria that black people are going to meet so the policy might say We're going to drug test someone who has a history of drug use. So it doesn't matter if it was 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago. If you have a history that's written in the record, you're going to be drug tested again. The policy might also say anyone on Medicaid will be drug Mm. tested. Or anyone who's late to prenatal care, who starts prenatal care after 20 weeks, should be drug tested. Not taking into the other factors that can make you late Uh, to start your prenatal care you know that you might be uninsured so it may take weeks to months to get insured Mm -hmm. and Medicaid is insurance so not taking into account all of that just the fact that you start prenatal care late may flag you for drug screening and drug screening your baby and a lot of hospitals don't inform you that they're drug screening you, drug testing you or drug testing your newborn and so what that results in is that African American women are drug tested about 50% more than white women are. Mm. And it's just because the black body is suspect or any, any behavior can be interpreted in that negative way.
0: Mm. And
1: anything you say or do can trigger someone to drug test you
0: because they're suspect. So what does this look like then with this whole o- opioid
1: <laughs>
0: thing that has happened, which we know historically did not start with black folks. Right. How has that played out?
1: Well, it's been really interesting to see that play out because that does mostly impact white Americans, and, and it often involves the use of prescriptive drug usage. And so, ironically... <laughs> It's a condition often initiated <laughs> by the medical-industrial complex because someone wrote you a script and you became addicted to that substance. And ironically, that kind of addiction has seen an entirely different public response play out, mm-hmm. I believe, because it's white people. And so it's not like what I saw during the 90s as a new nurse where you know everyone was hotlined if they were drug tested and found drugs on board and children, the Division of Family Services was called in, children were removed from families. It's not like that at all. Now, everyone deserves and needs compassion and gets help and you don't see this severing of families and you don't see this criminalization of pregnant persons with addiction issues it's a very different response and again very strange to see it play out but it totally plays out along racial lines
0: absolutely absolutely so let me ask you this what role do you think that Uzazi village plays in supporting and strengthening black families.
1: I think we play a huge role. So so there's our models, we have our models of care and what we do here at Uzazi is uh, essentially create adjacent systems, okay. culturally specific adjacent systems. So for instance, we're sitting in our clinic. This clinic is a result of another model. Of care I call it the village circle model it's an afrocentric group prenatal care model so this is an experimental clinic I'm trying out an idea what I call an afrocentric adjacent system black women can come here get their prenatal care they're still going to give birth at one of our local hospitals around here but They're going to have a doula assigned to them in this clinic. That doula is going to provide that continuity of culturally congruent care by accompanying them to the hospital setting, which we consider toxic and hostile environments for black bodies. But they're going to get the nurturing care here in our item A clinic, and then they're going to have a doula that will accompany them to their hospital if they're giving birth in the hospital. So so that would be an example of how we're creating sacred space around maternity care that sort of nurtures gestating black bodies and provides safe space for them even when they have to go into toxic arenas. I know the hospitals around the country are the same, that no one in this moment is getting it right. And so we are working to reform healthcare environments to become more less racist, so to promote anti-racist ideologies and and policies Mm -hmm. in healthcare settings, but we're also working on the community side to create safe space Mm -hmm. for black bodies and black families.
0: Okay, so uh, you know I'm going to have to go here because I can hear... People saying, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about the mothers, mothers, mothers. We're the fathers in this, Mm -hmm. right? So I want to talk about how you are supporting the whole... Of the family, mothers and fathers Because fathers play an important part in this yes. And folks you know, would like to think that fathers are not here yeah. or involved
1: Well they'd like to think that But I always welcome and embrace that question Because we get it often Well what do you do about fathers? My enthusiastic answer is we do absolutely nothing Because we don't have to do anything because they're here mm-hmm. That's why we use the term family In all our marketing and, and all our research We serve black Families, and just as you're looking at that mural on the wall that shows a mother figure, father figure, and an infant figure, that's that's who comes to us from care. Even when you walked through earlier, you saw a family, Absolutely. a mother, a father, and a child
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, sitting in the room. There, we serve families, and fathers or male or same-sex partners are always a part of that. Or mostly a part of that unit and so that means they're integrated in all that we do we purposely don't set aside uh, space or hold up a banner that says hey this is for you fathers because we're not trying to attract them we assume they're already there because they're already there
0: absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. so I want to ask a question, so last, and this is amazing how this happened, last week was Thanksgiving, and during a conversation at Thanksgiving, I heard a member of my family who happens to be an OBGYN say, I was talking to my oldest daughter about doula, she's in college, and I said, you know, maybe you could consider becoming a doula, that might be something that you might be interested in, and my family member said, yes, this hospital that I work in has a doula program where people can go to this program and, and now it's not here in Kansas City, Mm -hmm. um, but people can go to this program. Have you heard of those types of programs and how would that model differ from yours?
1: That model differs a great deal from mine. I won't come out and say that there shouldn't be hospital-based doula programs, but I am a little skeptical. About when it comes to hospital-based doula programs, I run a community-based doula program And that's the language we use I always call it that because that's what it is It's community-based which is different from a Mm facility-based or hospital-based doula programs Remember earlier I said in this conversation that doulas are primarily educators and advocators well, it's difficult to advocate for someone when you're being paid mm-hmm. uh, by the institution that Absolutely. you may have to advocate against. Absolutely. So, so I do see not that a do a hospital based doula program couldn't be successful by some measures, but there is an inherent conflict there. Absolutely. And if the doula has to advocate on behalf of the client in the face of an institution that's, you know, paying them their paycheck, that's it's kind of an untenable position for the doula. But they can be great change agents. They can effect slow and subtle change from within the institution. Mm-hmm. They can apply subtle pressure so there's a space for them to make change within that institution, but there is, there definitely is some inherent conflict there too.
0: Okay, okay. I just wanted to know your thoughts. I mean, I love the community-based program. One of our more famous doulas, Erica Badu, <laughs> yes. Yes, she is. who I believe is very good at what she does, both singing and being yes. a doula. Watching her has helped me to understand how that community-based, again, it's an auntie, right? We're looking at Auntie Erica go in and work with these women and and be alongside these women. And so I just definitely want to hear what your thoughts were on a hospital-based program. It piqued my interest when she said it because I thought, you know, that's something that's a little different, Mm -hmm. a little unique, but I could see the
1: there's conflict, but it could work. and And I won't say that that might not be a part of my future work. Right okay. now we currently have a Doula training system that mm-hmm. we created here, and we travel around the country and do that training. So just this year, we went into five communities. They were all here in the Midwest, but we went into five different communities to help them start up community based Doula programs so we're helping others do that all around the country I think it's only a matter of time before we're contacted by a hospital to help us do the same I think it's only a matter of time and and i don't know how i'll respond in that moment but i'll probably proceed very carefully i want to know what their motives are what their expectations mm-hmm. are how they plan to integrate this how much buy-in do they have with the clinicians who are part of their healthcare system what support do they have in the communities that they're going to serve for this So there's a lot of questions that I would ask. So I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I think we need to proceed carefully.
0: Absolutely. So in your work, and we've talked a lot about the community work, I want to talk about policy and how you envision yourself and your organization being a change agent for policy, whether it's state-level, federal. What does that look like?
1: Ooh, that That is a big conversation because I think policy is so critical. Policy is simply our rules for how we do what we do. And so I think policy is really, really important in this game. I've found that over time in the 10 years that I've done this work, that I've gone from on-the-ground programmatic work to higher-level policy work and that it's just naturally moved in that direction and that I'm more surrounded by policy walks than ever before. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really important, critical answer because I, I think a, a great deal of the answer to health inequities in black communities does revolve around policy change. I think it revolves around systems change, but policy is walking your way to systems change. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I'm mainly primarily working right now with local policy, uh, meaning policy that's embedded in the institution. But yes, when we look at countywide, statewide, federal policy, all of those things have a place I'm probably less of a player in those bigger arenas, Mm -hmm. but I'm very invested in policy change within the institution because it really creates uh, a format for how people behave within those systems.
0: Mm, I love that. Thank you for saying that because when we think policy, a lot of times we are thinking government, right? Mm -hmm. What is this government policy? But there's policy within institutions that needs to be addressed, whether that's hospital or public health or whatever the case may be what yes. are these policies that need to be addressed in order to ensure that everybody every human yes. gets the care that they should be getting Right, but especially those who have lived at the margins right interesting uh,
1: that isn't influenced by bias right and misbelief and Historical legacy that's really negative because we're still li- living under the legacy of Jim Crow and separate systems, separate systems of care. I myself was born into a segregated hospital. Mm-hmm. I was born here in, at General Hospital Number Two, Absolutely. which was considered, you know, the the colored hospital, and there was General Hospital Number One, which was for whites. And they later merged a few years after my birth. But at the time of my birth, they were actively segregated. So I was born into the segregated world. So it's not that far off. Mm -hmm. And our thinking is absolutely still impacted by those historical
0: facts. Absolutely. So if we have some listeners who are not black or not people of color, and they want to get involved and help, what would you say to them to get involved, to help push this narrative of inclusiveness in healthcare?
1: Well, they can't help me or you. <laughs> That's okay. the first thing I say. They can't help me or you. They can only help themselves. And I think it's really important for white Americans to understand that racism isn't a black person's problem or a Latino's person's problem or an Asian person's problem. It's an American problem. It's all of our problem and they need to understand how they're negatively impacted if I don't get quality health care. Mm-hmm. They have to understand that if a black baby dies in their city, that absolutely has an impact on them. They need to understand what that impact is and they need to do this work for themselves. They need to find it unbearable. To live in a system that treats other human beings this way. Mm. I don't want them to do it for me. They can't do it for me. They're, they can't help me, but they can help themselves. They okay. could do it for themselves because they want to be better people and they want to live in a better world.
0: Absolutely. And then if you had a direct line to black women and black families, what would you say?
1: I would say don't believe the lie. Don't believe because you live in a black body that you're sicker, that things have to be this way for you. This is all artificial, it's all man-made. It's because we live in a corrupt system that doesn't value us, that doesn't see us, and this is the fallout of it. But don't believe the lie that something's wrong with you because you inhabit a black body.
0: Oh, Mama Hakima, thank you so much. Now, if people want to get in touch with you or want to learn more about your organization, how do they find you?
1: You can find us online our website is www.uzazivillage.org we're on all social media uh, facebook twitter and instagram and of course we're embedded here in midtown in kansas city in the heart of the community we welcome people to find out more about us we are so proud of our models of our anti-racist afrocentric culturally congruent care models we are absolutely trying to reform health care from both the inside and the outside and we're very proud of the work that we do and invite anyone to support that work or to come join us in that work.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Anatomy of a Crisis. To learn more about Hakima Payne and the work that Uzazi Village is doing in the community, visit www uzazivillage.org. That's U-Z-A-Z-I-Village.org. Thank you for joining us for Anatomy of a Crisis, the Impact of Racism on Public Health in America. This podcast is a production of the Kansas City Public Library in partnership with the Kansas City Health Department. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, and until next time, be well.